Welcome to the Compliance for Radio Show. We're dedicated to helping you connect with the greatest minds in the regulatory, legal, and compliance fields. Here's your host, Elizabeth Hamilton Guarino. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Compliance for podcast. Uh, we're, I think we're on our fourth show now, and we've got a big show for you today. We're going to spend the hour on today's podcast with ICI's Susan Olson and Tammy Salmon. So give them a big welcome to the Compliance for podcast. They're going to, again, join us for the hour to talk about the top compliance trends and the SEC agenda for funds uh, and kind of what the mutual fund and ETF industry is watching right now. But before we get started, I wanted to share a bit about the history and mission of the Investment Company Institute, or ICI as it's called, before we get started. And and welcome either Susan or Tammy. I'm not sure who we're going to be interviewing first, Um, so we'll go with that when we go live with them. Um, But the Institute was established in 1940 in New York, and ICI has worked to advance the interests of mutual funds, their shareholders, directors, and investment advisors throughout its history by pursuing and helping secure a variety of public policy objectives. The Institute engages in Three core missions, encouraging adherence to high ethical standards by all industry participants, advancing the interests of funds, their shareholders, directors, and investment advisors, and then also promoting public understanding of mutual funds and other investment companies. These three objectives are essential organizing principles for many and varied activities in which the Institute participates on behalf of funds and their shareholders. And today, ICI serves as a spokesman for funds and their shareholders before policymakers, opinion leaders, and the global media. So as we're listening today, please go to ICI.org. You can uh, check out their website. ICI is also very active in social media. So they're on Twitter, at ICI, and they're also on Facebook. Facebook and LinkedIn, and I'm going to go ahead and welcome Susan to the show here. But it's a it's a very dynamic time in the world of fund and compliance, fund compliance and regulation. Technology, innovation, and simplification are just a few of the big trends driving changes in how funds are serving investors. So to find out what's on the minds of regulators and those in the industry, I'm talking to to experts, like we said today, um, from the ICI. And the first will be General Counsel. Susan Olson, who will fill us in on the agenda for funds at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, um, including planned changes to the approval process for exchange-traded funds, um, SEC plans for modernizing shareholder report delivery, and potential changes to the fund investor investor disclosure documents. And if I didn't say this at the top, my name is Elizabeth Hamilton Garino. I'm one of the founders of Compliance 4 and also the Best Ever You Network and uh, also an author with Hay House. And um, I'd like to really uh, give Stephanie at ICI a huge, huge thank you for organizing this and producing this and helping organize the questions that we're going to ask and um, really organizing the speakers and just everything that goes with this show today is uh, ICI Stephanie and um, we just we just love her and Thank you so much. And um, Susan, are you are you uh, live on the air? Yes, with I'm me on now? the line. <laughs> Hi, Susan. Thank you Hi. so much for being with with me today. Um, I wanted to read a little bit about you, and um, feel free. The, the show's pretty fluid. You know, if you need to interrupt, interrupt. You know, add things to it. But um, I wanted to just make sure everybody knows that you're the general counsel of the Investment Company Institute, or ICI, and you're serving as the institute's chief 
legal officer with responsibility for a full range of legal and regulatory matters affecting the Institute and its members. You joined ICI as Senior Counsel International Affairs in 2007 and served as Chief Counsel of ICI Global since 2014. Before that, you served in the Division of Investment Management at the SEC or the Securities and Exchange Commission. And at the SEC, you worked in the international branch of the division's office of the Chief Counsel, where you resolved legal issues arising under the Investment Company Act and the Investment Advisors Act and provided guidance for trade negotiations. Um, a variety of things that you've done, so many things. You're a graduate of Wellesley College and uh, your law degree is from the University of Virginia. And I just thank you so much for being here. It's a heck of a, <laughs> a, heck of, a lot of achievements well, th- there. Thank you Wonderful. for having me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Um, so should we just, let's get right into it. Um, I'd love to know what you and your team at ICI are tracking most closely on the SEC's regulatory agenda. It seems very, very busy there. So you're right, as you, you sort of mentioned in your um, earlier comments, that they've been really very, very active. It's been, um, I think people are really pleased and happy to see a lot of uh, initiatives moving through the SEC. They've had um, a full commission up until Commissioner Pivovar left in July, and the um, division heads of investment management and trading and markets came in the autumn. So they've really had a very, very active um, kind of agenda going through the year, moving a lot of uh, rule proposals and other initiatives that, you know, we've been following for a lot of years. Um, And some of the things we're tracking right now most closely, um, we continue to be tracking very, very closely the liquidity risk management program rule. Um, Funds and their advisors and their boards are all working very diligently to kind of work through that rule and get their programs working and working on the classification of their assets in order to report them. Um, so that's one where we're in the process. The SEC has been issuing frequently asked questions. They also extended some of the compliance dates to help funds meet these new requirements. And then there was also, uh, they made some changes in June, they adopted Um, some amendments that will allow funds to put disclosure in their summary, in their, sorry, their shareholder reports about their liquidity risk management programs rather than putting um, the bucketing or classification information out in the public yet. And go ahead. ahead. No, 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 I was just going to say, it seems like it's very, um, very interactive these days. It is. I think it's been a really good, you know, I think the industry has been giving the SEC a lot of input about sort of where the challenges are in implementing that rule, um, you know, where the costs are, where the complexity is, what they're struggling with. And that's been very, very helpful for both sides, I think. Um, And so, you know, people are spending a lot of time on this rule and getting their programs in compliance so that they'll be ready to meet the dates and um, move forward with that. So it's been a really good sort of relationship in order for the industry to be able to ask the questions and and make the SEC aware of where are some of the, the challenges that people are having. Um, the other area we're closely tracking, we've got a comment letter coming up, is in the standards of conduct for financial intermediaries. Um, so we'll be submitting comments on that. And the ETF rule proposal that will finally has, we have a proposal to codify um, 
the exemptive orders that funds have been operating under um, for many, many years, for more than 20 years. So that's another one we're very pleased to see come out of the SEC. It's been uh, a long time, and I think uh, people were are positive about what the proposal looks like. It really has sort of taken the, all the different conditions that are in the various exemptive orders and packaged them in a, in a proposed role. And it seems like everybody's in a mode of listening. I think that's right. You know, that's actually a really good observation. Um, I think people are listening and on both sides, you know, to sort of hear, you know, how things would work better or how they could be improved. And it is a much different um, sort of atmosphere than, you know, post-financial crisis. It was we need to think about where are areas that need to be fixed to make the system stronger. And now I, I feel like it's a much more forward-looking agenda. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, you know, we use this word modernize, you know, the SEC's modernizing thing. And it's funny, I lived through one of these modernizations back when Edgar was first implemented. So it's right. interesting to hear that word come up again. Um, could you um, dig in a little more about the SEC's plans to transform and modernize for example, like report delivery, um, sometimes, and, and clarify, you know, the, the S, what SEC modernization sort of means to you or to ICI. So I think, you know, from my perspective of working in this area, it feels like about every 10 years, you know, there's a sort of step back, let's look at our disclosure, um, you know, particularly for funds, which, you know, that's where retail investors, you know, use for their most important financial goals they use to meet, you know, to save for school or for homes or for whatever their long-term sort of goals are. And, um, you know, when I, when I first joined the SEC, they were finishing up their plain English initiative, um, which was to make the documents sort of more readable. And then you, you know, about 10 years later, you had the summary prospectus. And I think now everyone is sort of needing to look at the electronic delivery of documents, but also the electronic delivery of information. And so you have a, a very much a proposal or a release out where the SEC is looking to hear from people about how can we best set up our disclosure system so that shareholders and markets are getting the information they need about funds and in the way that's most usable for them. And, you know, so you're thinking about not just electronic delivery, um, but also how do you set up this information in electronic format, but you've also got to respect the fact that there are people who still want to see things in paper. Um, I think, you know, you know, some people like to read books in a paper format, some like to read it on in an electric format. Some people still read newspapers, some people like to get online and look at the paper that way, and I think funds and the SEC are trying to sort of balance all this and think about how they can come up with information that's, you know, most usable for investors and markets. I like the way that you just explained that as well, because I think what, as you're talking, you're always keeping the investor in mind. And I think that's really important for this show because we never know who's listening, do we? 
Like it could be just we even we have teenagers that listen to this show. Whatever, yeah. Whenever the topic is money, you know, there's a whole wide range of people that listen, whether it's an industry professional or somebody thinking about investing. Um, So that's that's really interesting. And I I think you're you're right. You've got this whole different age graphic too when you think of funds. You know when you know, people get out of school and they start their jobs and they have a 401k plan, you know, you've got someone who could be in their early 20s and they need, you know, information in a usable format to the same extent that someone in their 50s or their 70s. And, you know, that's a big, a large group of people that you're trying to make sure you reach in in a good way. Yeah, for sure. I know as a mom of four boys, uh, the last thing they're going to do is head out to the mailbox at the end of the driveway and get the newspaper. It's just not happening. Yeah, 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 it's true. I watch. Um, So the SEC is also talking about changing the ETF approval framework. Um, What do we know about that? So so that's essentially right now um, ETFs, you if you want to um, register an ETF, you have to go in and seek uh, exemptive relief, and that's what these orders, that's what you get. And there's 25 years of these orders, so it's a fairly well-understood process, and the conditions are fairly similar, although not, they're not all the same. And that was one thing that's good about this rule. It will sort of bring all the ETFs in to have a common uh, kind of framework in which to operate. And under this rule, they set out the conditions essentially that you could set up a fund, an ETF, and if you comply with all the requirements of the rule, then you can go forward with it. It's basically, you know, it sets out the requirements for operating an ETF instead of having to go in there and ask for the SEC's permission through the exemptive order process. So it will be much more efficient and much more fair. All the funds will be operating in the same way. Do you mind taking one step back and just explaining what an ETF is in case we just lost somebody on that terminology? Sure. So the, an ETF is, the, is an exchange-traded fund, and most of investors are buying these in the secondary market, and uh, but they have what they call an arbitrage mechanism uh, that you have uh, authorized participants that are buying and selling shares of the fund directly in order to keep the price of the fund that's in the market close to the fund's net asset value, the NAV. So keeping those close and, you know, investors are therefore buying in the market at a price that's close to the fund's NAV. Great. Thank you for doing that. Um, so we're going to so jump around. So I would, from, just so you know, I would. it's different from your typical mutual fund, right, because you're able to buy it in the market, whatever, you know, when the market's open, whereas in a mutual fund, you just get out at the end of the day or get in at the end of the day. So that's the difference. Some people want to be have that flexibility, right, to be able to get in and out of a fund position whenever they want to. Helpful. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to be just asking you kind of a series of questions here, and they might not fit together perfectly um, sure. due to time constraints. We only have a half an hour with you, whereas we could probably have four. Um, so, uh, so I want to I want to really the the liquidity management um, program rules seem to be very uh, very hot topic right now, and I was wondering if you could spend some time on um, how that's going, how how is the SEC's rule going, um, and what's the industry doing to prepare that and to prepare and we'll just sit back. That could be an hour answer, right? 
Yeah, and I think you can talk to Tammy a little bit from her compliance officer perspective. Um, I think the the funds are it's going well. The SEC has, you know, as I said and mentioned, has given some guidance that's helped funds as they design their programs. And uh, some of this is also the enhanced reporting that is also going into effect at the same time. There's going to be uh, enhanced reporting that's going to the SEC about fund portfolios that includes some of the liquidity information. Um, and so they're working very extensively with all their operations and systems behind the scenes. It's something that you know investors don't necessarily see, but it's it's a very substantial part of fund operations is all all these systems that work behind the scenes. So I would say on liquidity risk management, a fund's board has responsibilities and the manager is also working uh, to make sure all the portfolio information is getting where it needs to get. Um, And the boards need to understand what the liquidity risk management program, how it's working, how it's designed, how it's set up. And so that's kind of what they're doing right now. They're kind of all out trying to implement all the requirements and make sure that operationally this is going to work the way they had planned um, or the way they've designed. And they're working with various vendors, too, that will help them make sure that they're going to meet all their requirements under the rules and have all the reporting set up so that it's working right um, and things like that. So so I think that's pretty much it's they're trying to get their systems up and running so everything's in good shape. And they call that LRMP, right, as a little catch, catchphrase yeah, for it. Yeah, that's kind of liquidity LRMP. risk management program. All right. And um, if a, if an average investor is listening, um, does that af- affect them in any way, or uh, is there a is there anything that an average well, investor needs to know about that? I think it's you know I think it's it's. Funds have always been responsible for meeting their redemptions. Um, That's one of the requirements under the 40 Act. And the liquidity risk management rule formalizes that responsibility. And I think it will make, it helps investors to feel even more confident that their funds will be able to meet redemptions um, no matter what's going on in the market. And uh, it adds some discipline to the process for the funds themselves. And it also highlights the the responsibility that funds have to to manage the liquidity of their funds. So I'm not sure. I think they will see disclosure in their shareholder reports that explains kind of what's gone on over the past year with a fund's liquidity risk management program. So that will be good. They'll probably be more, you know, attuned to it. Um, But I think on a day-to-day basis, they're probably not going to notice anything. But I think it helps add to the strengths of mutual funds as, uh, you know, a strong financial product. Now, when I announced that you were going to come on the show, um, people tweeted me questions for you. So this is one coming from um, there. It's coming from Twitter. And the question is, the SEC is looking for additional comments on bucketing classifications. Is the ICI intending to supplement its comment letters with more data and empirical evidence? I think at this point, the rule's not even in effect yet, um, so there, we don't have any intention of, of adding anything further. I think uh, funds are continuing to work with the bucketing and the asset classification, and if any you know, additional questions that you know, 
the industry feels it needs additional guidance from the SEC, we'd be happy to support the industry. But at this point, I'm not aware of anything further we'll be doing. Okay. Um, Let's go back, go forward, and actually to Mm -hmm. the RegFlex agenda. Um, Is there anything we should be looking for on the SEC's RegFlex agenda? You know, I think there's a you know a couple of things that's sort of of interest of interest perhaps to people. There they are. You know, what's on there has been a summary prospectus for variable annuities, and and that's a you know a good thing to take a look at. That's uh, the mutual funds have had a summary prospectus for many years, so that would be a good one to update. But I think one of the other ones that I think is is a good one that they are continuing to work on is they are looking at um, a rule on the use of derivatives by 40 Act funds. And right now there's a lot of no action letters and some other just general guidance from the SEC. And so they are looking at uh, proposing a rule in this area, which I think is good for investors and good for funds. Um, can you tell us more about the plan to reexamine shareholder reports? And we're going to just ask you a bunch of questions. Right, <laughs> right, here. yes. Thank you. So the shareholder reports, I think, is all part of this um, modernization of fund documents. And I think with shareholder reports, there have been ongoing concerns about, are these documents too long? Do they have the information that is of most interest to shareholders? And so this is, a, again, a way to make the documents more useful and more concise for investors um, so that they get the information that, that they really want and it's in the form that's most usable to them. Now, I, I also noticed there's a lot of changes right now with the SEC, with the leadership and the commissioners and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. do you, what do you know about um, all, the, all those new appointments So or the new commissioner appointments? Yeah. They are, you know, very political. They will go through uh, certain committees in Congress before they're actually appointed. And so right now you have um, – there's one other commissioner whose term will end by the end of the year, a Democratic commissioner. And Commissioner Pivovar was a Republican. And so we expect that sometime – Maybe at the beginning of the year, you'll have two new commissioners appointed. They'll get through the process at some point um, in the beginning of 2019. So hopefully we will be back up to a full commission um, early in 2019. And we can steer away from politics on this call. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Definitely. you know, it's sort of you, you have this process that the commissioners, you know, have to go through. So it is political at some base base point it has to be political because it's going through congress but um but they are you know looking at the issues with um an expert's eye and and weighing the pros and cons of all these uh complex proposals that come in front of them i mean this is a very complicated area the securities markets are are very complicated no, I I think this is really interesting um, that Michael Pivovar was especially well known for also, and that was increasing the um, SEC's focus on data driven and data informed decisions. Um, can you tell tell us about right. that impact overall? Yeah, I think it's been a it's been a great influence. I think the SEC, you know, knew after the financial crisis that they needed more and better information. Um, on the markets as well as on funds, and 
Commissioner Pivovar was was really great at continuing to push that message. I think related to derivatives, he really wanted the SEC to take, um, as they began to get more enhanced reporting from funds about their portfolios, he really thought, you know, why don't you take a look at that information as you think about funds use of derivatives, um, because you'll be much more informed in what you propose if you have sort of more data about funds and how they're using derivatives. And so it's been a great um, influence in terms of how you really need the data to understand what you should be proposing and how how that might impact how funds are managed. Um, if you have data, you, you have a better sense of, of what you might put in a rule and how it might affect a fund or how it might affect markets. Is there anything um, – I know we're going to run on time here with you. I have, I have two more questions for you. Um, okay. One is about compliance professionals. And, um, you know, there's, there's so much energy. There's so much information. There's so much everything out there. Um, what, sh- what do you think are maybe like three or five things or more or whatever you want to say for this answer um, that, that compliance professionals should have on their radar? And we've touched on some of them, but um, what's, what's really important right now? So I would say from from my perspective, so I came, um, I'd been working more in the international sort of area uh, for the past couple of years to sort of taking account of what's going on in some of the the non-U.S. markets, what are those securities regulators proposing for funds and for their investors. And what has struck me as I've come back into this position is how much the SEC is using data as they perform their oversight of funds and of the markets. And I think for compliance professionals, what feels different to me even than when I was at the SEC, and I did do some disclosure review when I was there, um, that now the SEC has a lot of data about funds generally and then about you know each fund in particular. So I think for compliance professionals, of a fund, they need to be very aware of the data that's available on their own fund internally and also what the SEC may have, and also be aware of the fact that as the SEC is looking at their fund, they also have a perspective of all the other funds. Um, So they will be thinking about how your fund maybe compares to other funds, and that's, that's sort of feels a bit different now in that um, I think the SEC is um, probably more proactive than it was 10 years ago. And we know that the Division of Investment Management is doing a lot more analytics. You, You know, if your fund name says you invest in a particular asset, you know, they're going to go back and they are going to look at your portfolio and see if if you are doing what you said you were doing. Um, so they're just a lot more proactive. Uh, and I think that's something that a compliance professional also needs to take account of as they perform their everyday duties. Sounds like they can connect the dots a little bit better than they could in paper. Right, right. And I just think it's a um, there's a different uh, – sort of environment now. I think the regulator wants to be ahead of any problems or issues or, you know, market events, and they want to understand what could and could not happen. They, They really, they feel 
I just I just think there's a lot more accountability for them to sort of be aware of, of what's going on. Yeah, I think it's a great eagle eye perspective. Thank you for that. I bet everybody right sure. now is thanking you for that. That's a that's great insight. Um, so the other question I have is sort of off off compliance a little bit and a little bit more personal to you, if you don't mind. And if you don't want to mm-hmm. answer that, that's absolutely fine. But we air also on the Best Ever You Network, and so the show is shared on iTunes and Stitcher, and it goes, it, you know, it's it's syndicated. And so um, since you are who you are and you're in a very high up position at the ICI, I always love to tell anyone who might be listening um, what you, uh, how, you know, how you got to where you are. You know, did you make a decision in high school and college? Have you always been interested in the law and mutual funds? Do you mind sharing a little no, bit about sure. how you got to where you are? Cause it's, it's pretty impressive. So I Very think for impressive. me, I did like <laughs> yeah. I did like the law. I thought at one time that I'd wanted to do like criminal law, but then decided that that didn't feel quite right. Um, and so I ended up in sort of corporate law in a law firm, and um, you know enjoyed the. I sort of liked always understanding the puzzle and how you put those things together, and um, you know, and then your sort of personal life comes along and you have young children or, you know, you start to think, is this it? And I had an opportunity to go to the SEC and that's um, kind of what I did. And so after I was out about 10 years, I went into the SEC and it was a great experience. And um, I encourage people, you know, I sort of, I was working in a law firm and I went into the SEC and I worked with, I shared an office with someone who was only two years out of law school and she sort of helped me with, you know, sort of the new ropes I was learning. And, you know, I do I encourage people to take risks and sometimes step back if that's what it, you know, feels like. And I had a great experience, learned some new skills, and that's how I got into mutual funds. And um, same thing on the international. When I was at the SEC, I started to work with some of the international regulators who wanted to understand how U.S. mutual funds worked. And so being able to explain U.S. mutual funds you know, was a skill that I sort of tapped into as I worked with these foreign regulators. But I also began to sort of see, oh, they might, they had different approaches for some of some of their funds in terms of disclosure and what their investors wanted. And, and that's how I sort of got interested in bringing it all together. I really enjoy thinking about these issues from a very broad perspective. And, um, and then I, you know, I was at the SEC for several years and then had an opportunity to come over to the ICI. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, because yeah. I, I just think people listen and, and see the career path and some of the decisions that you've made regarding your career, and it, it might help somebody out who's who's looking for some guidance or and so forth. Are you available for people to reach out to you if they have questions like that? Or um, does the ICI work sure. like that? We're, okay, awesome. Um, because you might get some tweets. I don't know. <laughs> they might be okay. specifically. Okay. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We need to be respectful of your time. Um, I appreciate your global eagle eye view on all of these topics. And I thank you for joining me um, today, Susan. It was really wonderful to meet you and speak with you. And I really appreciate your time. Um, And so the next, um, we're going to be uh, shifting gears a little bit to our next guest, who is Tammy Salmon. She's also from ICI. She's the Associate General Counsel. And uh, again, thank you so much 
to Susan for joining us today. And um, you can follow along at ICI on Twitter, or you can go to their website, ICI.org. And as far as the show is concerned, like if, if you need to leave right now, um, you can always catch us on free replay. Um, the link is the link, and it goes um, kind of viral and syndicated all over. And so this, to listen to the show over again or share the show, um, there are all of those buttons that go with the link, and I'll and I'll put that uh, out there again. But my next guest from ICI is Compliance Maven. I love that. Um, And ICI Associate General Counsel Tammy Salmon. Um, She's going to fill us in on all the latest mega trends affecting the fund compliance world, including how fund compliance professionals are embracing technology to sort through those large data pools that Susan sort of touched on. Um, preparing their firms for compliance with the SEC's liquidity risk management program and harnessing artificial intelligence and machine learning to increase efficiency. That's, that's really interesting. Um, so this is going to be a very interesting conversation for the next 30 minutes. Um, Tammy Salmon um, is the Associate General Counsel of the Investment Company Institute, as I said before, ICI. In her capacity with ICI, she handles a variety of state and federal legal and regulatory issues relating to mutual funds, 529 plans, broker-dealers, and investment advisors. Her responsibilities include, um, she had a lot of responsibilities actually, including running ICI's Chief Compliance Officer, Chief Risk Officer, Chief Information um, Security Officer, Technology and Transfer Agent Advisory Committee. So Tammy, how are you? Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Did I get all of that right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I only provide support services to some of those committees, uh, the technology and the, the CISO, but I, I am responsible for the CCO committee and the uh, Chief Risk Officer committee and the Internal Audit Committee. That's a lot. Um, we um, Let's see. Now, how long have you been with ICI? It's, it's, well, I, I just celebrated my, my 25th anniversary here. Congratulations. That's that's awesome. Um, what's changed in 25 years? Oh, my goodness. A, a lot has changed. <laughs> uh, for me, professionally, when, when I joined ICI 25 years ago, my job was to work exclusively on state regulatory issues because at the time, every state could regulate mutual funds and they could dictate what funds could do in their portfolios or what their disclosure looked like. Etc. And it got to the point that it was impossible for a mutual fund to be sold in all 50 states because of the contradictory state requirements. So when I joined ICI, it was really to work with our members on resolving these inconsistencies and, and enabling our members to sell in as many states as they could. In 1996, three years after I joined the Institute, it got to the point that it was just unmanageable. So we went to Congress and we got Congress to enact the National Securities Markets Improvement Act of 1996, and one of the biggest changes to our industry that came from that is it preempted the authority of the states to regulate mutual funds. So no longer can states dictate the portfolio requirements or any operational requirements or any registration requirements or disclosure requirements. Instead, today, um, funds, if they're going to sell into a state, they have to make a filing with that state. They have to pay fees. But aside from that, states have no regulatory jurisdiction over the funds um, other than to investigate and bring enforcement actions with respect to any kind of fraud and deceit. So when I joined the Institute 25 years ago, that that was the world we were facing. In 96, we got the law changed. And so after 
the law was changed. I worked with the states to completely rewrite their securities laws. And then after that, um, we had other regulatory initiatives at the SEC, like the compliance rule, et cetera. And so I kind of evolved uh, the work that I did for ICI from working exclusively on state issues to working with our members on compliance-related issues. Now, of all the things that Susan talked about regarding the regulatory and the policy initiatives, um, are you? It sounds like you're engaged in those same um, issues with the members, correct? From a well, compliance it, it, angle, it, it's really on a, a more limited basis because you know I work with our members, chief compliance officers or, or CCOs, and really the CCOs only become engaged in an issue once it gets enacted by the SEC, and then it. Gets, you know, the CCOs get charged with writing the compliance policies and procedures. So the issues that Susan talked about, as they're working their way through the SEC, my only real input is if we need to provide um, information from a compliance perspective about how a rule would impact the fund. Then I get engaged on that. We reach out to our, our CCOs and, and get their input. But for the most part, um, we don't really engage the, the CCOs on those initiatives until they get adopted or enacted. We do, however, in our comment letters with the SEC, continue to remind them that CCOs already have a very full plate and they don't necessarily have the specialized expertise that a new rule would require. And we encourage the, the SEC not to impose additional responsibilities on CCOs. Got it. Yeah, that it's a big it's a big job, isn't it? Um, what what is the role, uh, especially for somebody again new listening um, to this uh, whole industry and not familiar maybe with what a chief compliance officer or CCO is? What's the role of a funds CCO? What do they do? So this this the role of CCO came about um, in 2005 when the SEC. Um, decided that they need a singular point person within a fund complex that is responsible for overseeing the fund's compliance program. So the SEC adopted a rule in 2005, um, and this was a mutual fund compliance program rule, also impacted investment advisors. And in part, it requires every SEC registered mutual fund and the fund's investment advisor to have a CCO. This person has to be approved by the fund's board and he or she can only be dismissed um, from their role with the approval of the funds board. And they do re report directly to a funds board. A CCO um, is responsible, their specific job is responsibility for ensuring that the fund and its service providers have compliance policies and procedures in place and that such policies and procedures are reasonably designed to ensure the fund's compliance with the federal securities laws, which includes the Securities Act of 1933, the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, the Investment Company Act of 1940, which regulates mutual funds, and then the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. So the rule requires the CCO to provide an annual report to the funds board, um, and it has to be in writing, and that report has to discuss the adequacies of not only the policies and procedures of the fund itself, but also the fund's administrator, the fund's investment advisor, its transfer agent, and principal underwriter, and the report has to discuss the effectiveness of the implementation of those policies and procedures. It also has to include information on any com um, material compliance matters the fund has experienced over the past year and any changes that were made to the required policies and procedures since the last report. And finally, um, in addition to providing this written report to the full board, 
the SEC's rule requires that the CCO meet at least annually in executive session with the independent directors of the fund, which means it's only the independent directors that are in that meeting. It's not any interested directors that may be on the fund's board. So CCOs, to fulfill this responsibility, they had really have to know what's going on throughout the fund complex as a whole. They can't just, you know, at the end of the year say, oh, now I need to put a report together. They've got to have the systems and processes in place to make sure they're monitoring everything that's going on, that information is rolling up, and the CCO realizes what's going on and can report to the fund board annually on what's going on. Yeah, that makes that again. That's quite a position and a lot of interaction with different people um, for for various reasons. Um, I imagine is that person um, probably not trying to win a popularity contest necessarily, um, but is it a is it a proactive role, a reactive role? Is there a way to um, function best in that position in that uh, in that role? It's it's more of an oversight role. However, um, you know, the CCO needs to make sure they know what's going on. So if something does go awry or there are early warning signals of a potential problem, then the CCO can get engaged and address that problem before it really develops into something. Uh, CCOs typically don't have supervisory responsibility. Instead, they work with the various business units within the fund complex to understand what's what's going on and to issue spot. Um, so if there's if changes need to be made to the compliance policies or procedures or processes, those are done at the ver- very early stages before a real problem develops. Thank you for answering that because that was a question that just got tweeted to us as we were talking. Oh. As you were talking, <laughs> yeah. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> so we're going to get that. Keep tweeting at us if you want to. I'm at best ever you or ICI. Either one, we'll we'll get your questions answered, or you can follow up after the show. Um, you can also type in um, in the comments to the show too, and uh, we'll watch those comments um, and answer them after the show or during the show. Um, Let's talk more about CCOs and, and the issues that they're focused on these days because it's changing, isn't it? That role is is uh, got a lot going on with it right now. Yeah, that, absolutely. I mean, you you know discussed with Susan the, the SEC's new liquidity rule, and as I mentioned, while while that was really you know pending with the SEC, CCOs didn't really get engaged with it because they have a full plate without you know getting involved in, in pending issues. But once it got adopted. Then every fund complex was charged with coming up with a liquidity program, and so the CCOs were very much engaged on that. Um, As I mentioned, this is not an area that they necessarily have specialized expertise in terms of managing the liquidity of fund portfolios, but they are charged with ensuring that funds have the policies and procedures in place to ensure um, compliance with the the new rule. So they have been involved in in drafting the the rules and policies and, and procedures understanding how the program's going to work, and they get involved with the funds board in terms of getting the board's approval on the program. So probably at the top of the list of of what they're working on today would be ensuring that the policies and procedures are in place and that they have the necessary board approval for the liquidity rule in light of the impending compliance dates. Um, Another issue, though, is just keeping up with, with all the regulatory changes. You know, you asked me how the um, you know, regulation has changed in the 25 years I've been here. When I joined the SEC, I mean, joined the ICI, we were really only focused on the SEC and the states in terms of regulatory issues. Now the regulatory landscape is so much broader, and there's so many more issues that CCOs need to understand, not only at a topical level, but in terms of how it's going to impact the fund 
and the policies and procedures they need to have in place for that. So one of the challenges that they have is, is really keeping up with regulatory changes, not only in the United States, but also globally, since so many more of our members now have a global presence. And the other issue, and you kind of touched on this with Susan as well, is data governance. Um, there is so much data that is held within a fund um, organization, and um, CCOs are really trying to focus today on fund governance, understanding what data is within, within the organization, um, the data it needs to maintain, what it can get rid of, ensuring that they have a golden copy of necessary data as they explore new technologies, understanding how the data is used within the fund complex, and really knowing what's, what's in their data so they can issue spot before, for instance, the SEC um, does data analysis and, and spots an issue that the fund was unaware of. Does um, does the SEC's regulatory agenda drive um, or impact that work of the chief compliance officers? Is, is a lot of that what drives all the different change? Well, so it's, it's interesting because we've you know talked about uh, regulatory initiatives, and, and absolutely those do impact the work of the CCOs once they get adopted because, again, it's the CCO that is charged with making sure that the fund has the necessary compliance policies and procedures, but I think the greatest impact on CCOs and the compliance co um, uh, professionals comes from the work of OSI, which is the SEC's Office of Compliance, Inspections, and Examination. So this is the office within the SEC that conducts exams of SEC registrants to ensure that they're in compliance with the law. And OSI's work really impacts um, CCOs in two ways. First, when we know that OC is conducting a targeted review of an issue, so for example, a review of trading activity by funds, CCOs become very focused on that area to make sure that if they get a knock at the door, they know their house is in order and they you know, have a level of, of comfort in responding to any SEC requests. So that's one area, is just understanding um, what the SEC is looking at. Secondly, though, once OC completes one of its targeted reviews, and OC does what's known as a targeted review. This is when they go out and, and visit typically between 25 or 50 firms to just look at the same issue to see how a variety of funds are dealing with the same issue. After it does one of these reviews, it uh, publishes a risk alert, which identifies practices that may be areas for improvement in the industry at large. So these risk alerts are something that um, years ago, the ICI encouraged the SEC to be begin publishing after they conducted targeted reviews in order to educate the industry at large about what OC was seeing. So OC started publishing these in 2011, and to this day, they continue to, to publish them. Uh, they published their, more, uh, their most recent one just a couple of weeks ago on the topic of best execution of transaction by advisors. So when OC publishes one of these risk alerts, even if our member was not involved in the targeted review where the data came from, they read those very closely to make sure that they're not doing anything that may, may be viewed as problematic in the SEC's eyes or that they, um, these may be areas that, that they can improve upon um, based on OC's observations. That's, yeah, so it's, in other words, there's, um, it seems like there's always a lot to learn, to keep your eye on things, because it, it, is it a daily update? You know, can it be like you need to watch things daily, or is it weekly, or monthly, or how, what do you well, suggest 
You're going well, I mean, the, the compliance officers are, are watching everything, you know, on a daily basis in terms of what's right. going on in, in their organization. And, again, once they, you know, get external information about what others are doing, that's when, you know, then they may make tweaks to their, their own organization. But a CCO, I mean, it's a 24-7 job because if something happens, the CCO has to be in a position to, to know what it is, engage with the board in it, make sure fixes are in place, report to the regulators, et cetera. So it, it is a full-time job. Yeah. Um, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about technology? Because we've been we sure. kind of touched on it a little bit. I'd love to go technology on you here and have you teach us um, about just you know data and regulation and um, because it it I think people might feel overwhelmed right now just with how you know how do I respond to all the things that are changing so quickly and it's I think it's and correct me if I'm wrong or add to it but it's you know it's in your personal life it's in your work life I mean technology is changing everything. Yeah, well, absolutely. And it's an area that our members are, are really just, you know, dipping their, their toes in. I mean, they, they really have not been exploring this in, in any, um, you know, critical mass yet, but it's something that, that they're starting to explore, um, you know, for the, the sake of efficiencies and, and staying ahead of the game. And what's interesting to, to me about, you know, technology is this is an area where years ago I would have said that the financial services industry was head and shoulders above the regulators when it came to the use of technology and analyzing data, et cetera. And one of the things that we have seen over the past few years is the trend has really reversed, such that such as today I would say that probably the SEC is way ahead of the financial services industry when it comes to technology and, and particularly data analysis. Um, if you look at the SEC's website, they've got a MIDAS system on there which tracks industry data and, and not just you know mutual fund data, but it's you know market data. And it's just one of many, many sophisticated systems that they have already developed and are continuing to develop. So their MIDAS system monitors the financial services industry, and it can take in a billion, and that's what they be, a billion records a day that are time-stamped wow. to the microsecond, and they can analyze 100 million records at a time. So whereas it used to be the SEC would conduct their exams of firms by going in and doing random sampling and making sure that everything was in order, what we're seeing today is they just want vast and vast amounts of data. Um, they will go into a firm and just say, give us all your data on whatever, and it can be over you know, many years' period of time. And then the SEC is running all that data through their algorithms to determine whether there are any potential areas of concern, whether there's any outliers. And because they can get all the data on all registrants, they're able to look across the industry in order to spot trends and anomalies. And that's something, no matter how sophisticated each one of our members is, they don't have the ability to see how they compare to their colleagues in the industry that are um, you know, doing the, the same kinds of investments or the same kind of business. So, so the, the SEC really is in a position to see all the industry data and see what's going on. And so you know, in, in that, from that perspective, they're, they're ahead of our you know, members in this area, but our members are trying to develop necessary data analytics so they can spot any kind of um, anomalies or potential concerns in their data and be aware of it before the SEC is aware of it. And you talked to, you know, Susan about Commissioner Pivovar's interest in data. This is another way at the SEC where, where we see them developing their data capabilities and being able to exploit data, and it's very much driving what, what the industry is going to be doing in this area. 
So is it time to embrace technology? <laughs> if you're one of those people who's like, I don't want to do that, um, how, do we, how do we tackle that? Well, it, it is time to embrace technology because it, it's coming. And, you know, with the, the younger generations, I mean, you know, it's something that, you know, technology is, is native um, to them. So it, it's something that, you know, our members definitely are going to have to be able to engage with, you know, the younger generations, particularly on on data. And, um, you know, it's, it's not the old world that, that we're all used to. But, you know, the other thing that I would emphasize in, in this, and, and one of the things that our members are, are very concerned about, and, and we're concerned from not only our industry perspective, but from the SEC's regulatory perspective, is cybersecurity. If you've got all this data out there, we need to make sure that that data is protected. And, you know, we can do what we can within our shops to predict data and, and stay apprised of, you know, what the local or the, the current trends are. But we also want to make sure whenever we're turning any data over to the SEC that they, too, are protecting that data. Because if any fund's data gets compromised, that's going to, to impact the industry at large. And, and our, you know, brands um, are a brand of trust and integrity. And we need to make sure that whatever happens, you know, with respect to data, that um, a shareholders' information is protected yeah. yeah. Um, so as you were talking again, a, a couple people tweeted me the same thing. Um, and so can, would you be willing to take another question from sure, the, sure. the general public? Okay. Um, people, the question is, is the role of the CCO going to diminish because of the data? Oh, ab- absolutely not. Three questions. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely not. The, the role of data is not going to diminish the, the responsibility of, of CCOs. It's going to up their game because they're going to have to be able to make sure that, that they can issue spot within in the data and, and determine that the fund is developing the ne- necessary algorithms. But, again, when you look at the role of the CCO, it's to ensure the fund's compliance with the federal securities laws. Those laws are in place, and, and you know, having more data or more analytics is not going to change the role of the CCO to make sure that the uh, fund's compliance program is ensuring compliance with a variety of the federal securities laws. So, so no, I, I think the data and technology can help increase the efficiencies and effectiveness of CCOs, but there's so many issues, again, not only domestically but globally, that CCOs have to, to keep an eye on that um, anything they can do to make their jobs more efficient is, is going to be welcome, but it's not at all going to diminish their role. Yeah. This is neat having you on, getting the latest and the greatest and the trends and your thoughts and everything. But I'm wondering also, how do you stay so current on everything? Like, How does ICI stay so current on all of these issues um, that are of concern to everybody out there from CCOs and, you know, and other compliance professionals? So, you know, number one, I mean, we, we support fund um, compliance staff through our, our CCO committee. So this is a committee that ICI created back in 2005 when the SEC adopted its compliance programs rule. And it's a community of our member CCOs. Um, so we, we've got a great uh, group of members who get together on a regular basis um, to talk about what's going on, what their concerns are. Um, we have created several resources to assist the members of the CCO in, in their work. And so, uh, for instance, one of the things that, that we do is collect anytime one of our members is visited by the SEC's inspection staff, the OC staff, 
the member shares with us a copy of that document request list. We redact all identifying information, and we post it as a resource so it's available to all CCOs, um, and only the CCOs, that's the only group we share it with. So a CCO at any point in time, if they hear that the SEC is doing a review, they can go to the CCO committee website and see what the SEC is looking at and what what questions they're asking. So that's a huge resource for them. Another uh, thing we have in our resource center for CCOs are specific compliance policies and procedures. If the SEC comes out and announces through some kind of guidance that funds need to have policies and procedures in a particular area, um, and members are, you know, starting, you know, to have to, to draft those policies and procedures. Once they get them drafted, they will share them with us. Again, we will redact them, anonymize them, and post them on our resource center so other funds can look and see how, uh, you know, another fund firm has dealt with that issue. One of the uh, requests that we have right now to CCOs is when they get their liquidity policies and procedures drafted, we have asked them to share them with us. Again, we'll mm -hmm. anonymize them and, and redact them and put them on our, our website. So CCOs will have access to this and you know it, it makes it easier for them to draft their own policies and procedures if they can see what others have included in theirs or they can compare the ones that they've drafted to what their colleagues are doing. So it, it's through this community of CCOs that I really stay informed of what's going on. But then we also maintain a regular contact with state and federal regulators. So anytime there's an issue that comes up and it, it seems like an anomaly or something that we need to get engaged on because it may impact the industry at large, we'll pick up the phone and, and call the SEC or the state regulator and have a conversation and see what we can do to, to work the issue out. It sounds like that's a great library of information that people, you know, for people to access. It, it is, but again, it is only available to mutual fund CCOs. So you have to be a member of ICI CCO committee. And once you're a member of that committee, um, you know, you're, you have access to the information because all the information comes from CCOs. So we view it as information that is provided by CCOs to be shared only with CCOs. And, and there's a huge level of trust within our sure. CCO community, which, which really helps. Yeah, I bet, that, I bet that would really help. That sounds pretty cool. Um, do, you, do you want to talk personally about, about yourself and how you got to where you are as well? Because I, I think people would love to, to hear about that. Um, sure. And, but I, I do have, I do have one more question too. So think, okay. think about that because we got one more question. Okay. Um, can we go to emerging issues first um, and then come back to you a little bit? Cause I think okay. it's really important to talk about this too. And I forgot about emerging issues because um, you know, you act on behalf of the members and so forth. And I'm, uh, we're curious what other things that you're seeing as other emerging issues to watch for, you know, some more trends um, and so forth. I, to ask so, you that. I think with the emerging issues, it's just really to repeat what we've already talked about, which is the whole okay. data issue, um, to, to start exploring new technologies. Technologies are driven by data, and you can't you know, explore those technologies unless you know you have really good, clean data. So that's why I think really the, the emerging issue for our industry is exploring technologies. But to, to take that step, we first have to go through um, you know, making sure that, that we have the clean data that will feed into those tools to produce the results that we're looking for. 
Thank you for that. Um, so let's, uh, I, I wanted to talk about you personally and how you got to where you are. And then I also wanted to come back before we end the show, if you don't mind, and um, give Stephanie some kudos again and some nods there because she did a great job helping organize all of this. And I also wondered um, if you wanted to talk about uh, ICI events at all because there's there are quite a lot of things that you guys put on um, as far as events go. Um, if you have any particular order you want to tackle all of that in, <laughs> let me know. Well, yeah, let, let me just mention the, the events first. So the, the week of, okay. uh, I think it's October 24th, uh, it's going to be, a, it actually the, the 24th is a, a Wednesday. So that week is, it will be a busy week for ICI because we have our cyber forum on Wednesday, October 24th, and that's when we bring together a variety of, of fund uh, professionals from, you know, compliance, audit, directors, um, technology, et cetera, to talk about what trends we're seeing um, in the cyber world and how those are impacting funds. So what are the latest threats? What are funds doing in response to that? What's going on with the, the cloud? What should funds be thinking about? So that's an excellent event, and anybody that's interested in cyber, even if you have no technology background, that would be an, an excellent event. So that's on the the. 24th. And then on the 25th, we have our annual law developments conference uh, where we do an update on what's going on from a regulatory perspective and from an OC and enforcement perspective at the SEC for, for our members. So that'll be on uh, Thursday the 25th. So both of those are, are events that I would highly recommend to anybody interested in, in learning about you know cyber and its impact on the mutual fund industry or the law procedures conference, understanding what's going on uh, from a regulatory perspective that's impacting our members. Are those events that you can attend via your computer, like via a uh, listening or no, watching those, those on the web? No, they have to be in person. person. They're, they're, okay. they're live in-person events. Okay, perfect. And they're, yeah, they're and here in Washington, have... D.C. Okay, great. Yeah, you guys have awesome events, and they're always so filled with knowledge and, and expertise and everything, and they're, they're very well done. It's one of my favorite things about ICI. So thank you for touching on those. Uh -huh. um, we did get one more question, then we'll go back go back to talking about you for one second and then we'll let okay. you go because I know I need to be respectful of your time. Um, do you expect another cybersecurity cyber sweep examination? That's a question that um, somebody tweeted to me before the show. Yeah, I think I think we're going to see the SEC doing cyber reviews every few years with a different focus. They're out there doing them now, and I think it's more of a governance focus. As the SEC has become more sophisticated in cyber, as they do their next round of cyber reviews, they, they start to take it a deeper dive. But it's important to remember that the SEC has very limited authority when it comes to cyber. Their only authority now is if there's any some kind of breach that impacts the confidentiality um, of consumer information, shareholder information. So when they're doing the reviews, they're really looking to see what the industry is doing, but they, they can't really do anything about um, what funds are doing in the absence of some kind of, of breach or compromise of information because their, their regulatory authority is currently limited. Okay, good. Thank you for answering that. Um, and thank you to the person who tweeted that. That was a very great question. Um, all right, so Tammy, tell me about how you got to be where you are for best ever you purposes and maybe compliance for purposes too. Because, um, <laughs> you've got quite a cool job, and I know people want to know more about it and and how you made the decisions you made. Kind of like Susan was talking about what she sure. how she got to where she is. Interesting. And, and, and I would I would confirm that I, I have a, a wonderful job and a very interesting job, and, and I love what, oh, yeah. what I do. But I started once I uh, graduated from law school, I worked for the Florida legislature for two years for the Commerce Committee writing banking and, and securities laws. And the second year I was with the committee, we totally rewrote the Florida Securities Act. Um, that was the result of uh, – 
uh, some major frauds in um, the securities industry in Florida. So we, the legislature wrote, rewrote the Securities Act. I then joined the um, Florida Division of Securities to write the rules to implement that new law, and I stayed there for eight years regulating the securities industry. So I would file enforcement actions against broker-dealers. I was in charge of the inspection staff and the regulatory staff, and, and it was a great job. But after eight years, you're pretty much doing the same thing day to day. And at that time, the ICI was looking for an attorney that had both legislative experience and regulatory experience um, to help them with all these state issues that I talked about at the the beginning of our discussion. And so I joined the Institute 25 years ago to start working on on those issues. And then my job just kind of morphed over the the years. But it's always been wonderful working, you know, for the industry and, and our shareholders. Did when you were in high school, did you say I'm going to be a lawyer? Just um, I when I, I was when I was in junior high. When I was in junior high, I huh. wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to be a juvenile court judge. Because you know, I, I thought these kids needed protecting. Oh. Uh huh. <laughs> so, so you know, I mean, I wound up going to That's law school. I stuck with with that that dream. But I mean, nobody ever dreams that they're going to be a forty act lawyer. So we all, we all just wind <laughs> up here. But but we all enjoy it. So and and you know, like Susan, she wanted to do criminal work. You know, someday when I retire, I'll I'll probably do pro bono criminal work because I think that would be very interesting work. Back with with juvenile. Or just, um, just no, no, not necessarily. I think there's so many okay. people that that need legal defenses today that that are not getting them. Yeah, uh, interesting. Thank you for that. I appreciate the sure. The, the I think that's interesting. And if, and it's interesting too because you knew in junior high, a lot of people are a lot of people know what they're kind of going to do in, in at a very young age. So that's that's good advice for people over on the best ever you side to kind of listen to your heart and, and your intuition for what you're going to do. So, well, and, and, and we're in an industry that's going to have a huge talent shortage. So anybody that, that's interested in the, the industry, I would strongly encourage them to, to pursue employment in our, our industry. There's so many different types of jobs that, you know, could, could fit whatever a person's interest is. Yeah. And I think that was one of my questions too, was like, so if you want to go into compliance or 40 act, um, is that a track that you take in law school or is it just something that you get it, you know, you go to like the SEC or go to a mutual fund, you know, that type of thing and start that in that direction out of law school? Is it a special field that you specialize in in law school these days? No, it, it's not. And, and, you know, there, there are a couple programs, um, you know, with, with a compliance focus. But, no, for the most part, you just, you know, wind up becoming a lawyer with an interest in securities and then, you uh-huh. know, focusing on mutual funds. So, so no, anybody that, that has an interest in, in the law would, would be, you know, a candidate for working in our industry. Very interesting. All right. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for your time. You're welcome. And all of your information. It's been so much fun to meet you and learn more about the role of the CCO and all of the things going on that surround that role and ICI and the SEC. And I just thank both of you for being with us for the full hour. It's been, it's been a true joy. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and to Stephanie, thank you so much again for organizing all of this. I really appreciate you. And to everybody at ICI, thank you as well. So thank you for joining us today. You can listen again to the rebroadcast of this anytime. Um, you can also share the show just by clicking the link. Um, it has all these social media share buttons across um, the left-hand side of the show. And we do also um, syndicate onto iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, and there's a bunch of other places too, but those are the, the big ones, um, as well as Blog Talk Radio, of course. Um, 
But as far as ICI goes, please follow them as well on Twitter at ICI. And then I've, I also love their Facebook page. Um, they've got a great Facebook page. It's Investment Company Institute or ICI as well. They're on LinkedIn. And then their website is um, just is so much information. It's ICI.org. So you can follow um, them. And I just thank you all for being here with us for the past hour. Thank you so much to Susan Olson and um, Tammy Salmon for being with us for the hour. And again, thank you so much to Stephanie for uh, helping us put this all together. So thank you, everybody, and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening and sharing the Compliance 4 radio show. Visit us at Compliance4.com to join your peers and our experts in our growing community.